The work of health researchers is vitally important to the safety and well-being of people around the world, with the COVID-19 crisis making that all too clear. However, health researchers are facing a crisis of their own, a crisis of trust. It's fueled partly by the proliferation of social media, the politicization of data, and the reluctance of some researchers to discuss their work. The issue of trust in health research is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Sandra Alba. Alba is an epidemiologist at KIT Royal Tropical Institute in Amsterdam. She's trained as a medical statistician in the UK and soon after moved to Tanzania to complete a PhD on access to malaria treatment. For the past 15 years, she's been applying statistical and epidemiological methods to the evaluation of public health programs in low- and middle-income countries. Her research focuses on data quality and good epidemiological practice, more specifically, the interplay between research integrity and research fairness in multidisciplinary international research. Alba also authored a recent article in Significance magazine about how epidemiologists might help increase public trust of health research. Sandra, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Just so we can get started, how did this issue of trust be something that you became concerned with? Yeah, I guess uh, many years of uh, working in health research, working in epidemiological research, many years of writing up studies and working on uh, evaluations and then realizing that uh, not so much changes and, um, in, in people's uh, practice and then in uh, um, I, whether it's just, you know, uh, people in their everyday life or even uh, certain uh, policymakers in their professional uh, work, there seems to be a huge uh, gap between how much science is produced and how much science actually impacts people's uh, lives. And I think it's, to me, it seems to go down to something very fundamental sometimes about uh, whether people trust what, uh, what we produce. I, I liked in your article, I mean, I, it really struck me when I, when I was reading this Time to Talk About Trust article that you, you wrote that uh, distrust in science is a global health issue. And so I, I, that was really that, that really resonated. And I went, wow, you know, why, why do you think of that as, a, as a, a global health issue? Why has distrust in science grown in, your, in your, some of the ways that you've looked at this? And what are ways that we can start to try to address this? Yeah, well, global health issue, because I've started to see that it was a problem everywhere. Because, of course, my, my work, originally I worked a little bit more um, in Europe, specifically in, uh, in the UK on childhood diabetes. And then, indeed, as you said earlier, Rosemary, I went to Tanzania and I worked um, there. And it seemed to me that, yeah, this problem, you, you kind of see it uh, a bit uh, everywhere in uh, all sorts of um, fields of research and also in uh, all sorts of countries. There seems to be this, uh, uh, this, this backlog. So that's why it, it seemed to be... Uh, as, as much of an, an issue as the actual health issues are an issue. Oh. And that's a global, yeah, a global health issue. And, uh, well, I, when I wrote that article, I was focusing especially on uh, uh, the case study of vaccines. And okay. then uh, the realization that this is, that we, we faced it with vaccines. We face 
problems in uh, both high income and low income countries. In low income countries, you know, we work so hard on trying to get people to access vaccines in the sense that, you know, the health system is able to uh, provide the vaccines and people are able to, uh, you know, get to health facilities and, uh, and get the vaccine. So that is uh, the work that is being done. And in, in many high income countries, this access is there in a certain way, but not being made use of uh, somehow. So, yeah, problems in of different nature, but in the end, both uh, end up uh, similar in the sense that we have many people who are not uh, vaccinated for different reasons. So in that sense, global. Sandra, in your one of your significant pieces, you make a distinction between the public debate and the scientific debate. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is uh, this was actually uh, I, I need uh, to uh, credit one of our uh, collaborators, um, Mariska Leiflang. She was one of the people who came to our um, event at Kit and uh, and brought that dimension of really two parallel debates uh, going on at the moment. So there's one scientific debate uh, that scientists engage with in the form of publications and the form of conferences, and then there's another more public uh, debate going on where uh, people discuss uh, many uh, scientific aspects that uh, affect uh, their lives. And at the moment, we see this a lot, of course. I mean, we, we saw it before, but now it's been so amplified with COVID. We have many, many, many people discussing COVID and its many facets, but not within the traditional uh, scientific debate. And what Mariska said, and I think uh, really focused on the problem, is that these two debates are going on in parallel. We have Mm -hmm. scientists discussing scientific issues in their scientific arena, and we have other uh, lay people who actually represent the majority of people in this world who have another debate. And these two debates are going on in parallel. And and that's really a problem because scientists... um, Say non-scientists believe they're having a scientific debate, but scientists do not recognize it as such. And as a result, they don't engage in it. Uh-huh. They dismiss it. And so that's where we have two parallel debates, which could actually benefit a lot. It would benefit a lot if there was actually more, say, movement in between both. So scientists injecting within the public debate and the public uh, also providing input in the scientific debate. And if we both listen to each other a little bit more... So how do how do scientists enter that debate? Do a better job of that. That's there seems to be these. There's not enough of an overlap. So yeah. I'm thinking the way you know you think of the way big corporations and businesses work. They have giant PR departments that get the word out. A lot of researchers at universities seem like they're you know they, there's a PR wing there, but they do all kinds of things besides. It seems like scientists need their own kind of PR wing to to get the word out and communicate better. What do you think? Yes and no, because maybe scientists need to just do it themselves, you know, and we, we're seeing that more and more. Uh, where actually, for example, on Twitter, there's there's interesting hashtags. There's an Epi Twitter I've discovered recently, and there's the hashtag Stats Twitter, I think, also, and that's really interesting. And it's um, it's, again, a way... In theory, this is a way where scientists can also contribute to the uh, to the public debate. But unfortunately, what I'm seeing still is that we're still again having scientists discussing with scientists on Twitter. So they're still not. It's the pat. It's the public platform, but it's still used in a very scientific niche uh, way. Unfortunately, so I guess. One good step is to start engaging on Twitter, but then you also need to start discussing in still a less technical, jargonful way to still actually on that platform debate with 
the rest of the world. So This reminds me of some of the debates in the development communication field that I've done some work in where, you know, people would go into communities uh, like Afghanistan, for instance, and, you know, try to um, do community projects that might be meant to empower women or to help increase education. And they would often fail because there was a lack of understanding of cultural practices in a community. And I'm wondering, I mean, it's a huge issue to tackle, but how much of sort of this issue of distrust of scientific information and, and maybe particularly health research can be boiled down to some maybe uh, this issue of like a cultural disconnect, maybe researchers not knowing what to use in the culture to help communicate messages about public health. Yeah, certainly. And uh, well, I think um, there was a very interesting uh, conference last week. It was the uh, WHO Infodemiology Conference, uh, which I attended. And there was a very um, inspiring keynote speech by David Nabarro, who really uh, discussed exactly this topic and really called for, well, a lot more humility from the side of researchers mm -hmm. and really um, engaging more and listening, listening to people, listening to people's concerns, going and going towards people rather than trying to get people to come to you. So it's really a bit shifting the way we work, I guess, towards a lot more, um, yeah, more of a dialogue and um, lis listening to people's concerns and really understanding where people are coming from and understanding people's concerns and listening to those concerns and listening to those concerns and reacting to that rather than just, you know, saying, well, no, that's not the problem. The problem is something else. Let's go. Let's go where I want you to be. But, you know, the idea really, really resonated to me as some a direction towards which we should go. But uh, answering Richard's question of how do we do it? Yeah, I still don't know how we should really do it. Like, what, what is the forum? Because one can say, um, yeah, scientists should engage more in social media because that's where the public debate is going on. But, but still, you know, how, the actual real how to, I'm still not sure what is the way. I, I like the idea that you just floated there of, of having the stakeholders involved. And I, I wonder how many scientists think about the public as, the, as a stakeholder in the work that they do. I mean, that's something I just was like, wow, I, I'm not sure. I, I think that a lot of times you think about other people that are in the area that are working on similar problems as ultimately the stakeholders. You know, one of the things I thought of as Richard was asking his question was, was how some journals will, will embargo certain studies that, that they want to and then do the press release to try to push this out. And that's where you get the news. But then you also tend to get a, a this this hyper focus on a single study or a single story, not on kind of this integrated this integrated story. And, you know, I, I wanted to follow up on this distinction of, of the scientific debate versus the public debate. A lot of times within the scientific debate, there are aspects of uncertainty or limitations and and you know within a within the public debate, I I wonder how often that that the uncertainty and and the, the limitations are translated into we know nothing, you know that that it's 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 kind of extrapolated to this extreme. So so how do we how do we we reflect kind of the fact that science isn't fully definitive, and that there's there's still more more wiggle room when when people are looking for more certainty. I mean, I, that's a really easy question, right, Sandra? But but I mean, <laughs> and actually, I, um, I, I interviewed, uh, I chatted to two journalists about this um, uh, some time ago, and I was uh, really trying to uh, get out of them. Yeah, how how can we better communicate this uncertainty in science? You know how. Uh, 
it, it's important that this is uh, that this is reflected, that it becomes clear that you know what we know uh, today might be slightly different tomorrow, and uh, confidence intervals and everything. But then he said exactly what you said, John. It's like, yeah, and then we don't know anything, you know, like. In the end, especially now, people really want certainties. They want science to give them certainties. And sci if science doesn't give them certainties, that's where they'll go somewhere else. So he said, actually, in his journalistic uh, work, sure. he, was, he, he was saying, yeah, sure, important, I understand. But this is this what you're mentioning is will only resonate to like only an elite part of our readers who will connect oh. to this mm -hmm. very uh, subtle message. Uh, but then the majority of our readers will not connect to that and will not understand and will just think, yeah, whatever. And he said, so actually, maybe I should mention who it is. It's uh, Luca Savioli from uh, a journalist in Italy. That especially in the beginning with COVID, uh, looking back, he thought there maybe had been too much of an emphasis on we don't know, we don't know, we don't yeah. know. And that oh. this translated in people thinking, yeah, we can do whatever because, you know, we don't know anything. Whereas, and he believes maybe some precious time had been wasted that could have been uh, you know used to act quickly because uh, still there was too much of a thinking of we don't know we don't know but by then we kind of knew uh, that we should have uh, acted so it's, it's very it's very difficult to um yeah to strike the right balance right because on one hand one could say that uh, this uh, explaining that maybe we can engage people more into uh, say uh more scientifically endorsed uh, behavior if they really understand uh, the scientific process and the way it works and that it has its uncertainties and that we build, you know, uh, every day we build a little bit more uh, brick by brick. So one could say that understanding this process may help or maybe it will completely uh, backlash. And mm -hmm. so it's very difficult to know <laughs> what should be doing. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Sandra Alba of the KIT Royal Tropical Institute in Amsterdam. So you were talking a bit about sort of the struggles of journalism, but I wonder if you there are examples of journalists who you think have done or stories that you think have been reported really well when it comes to, to public health issues around this issue of uncertainty, because um, it does feel like news media have a role to play in the sort of in the sort of propagation of trust in health information. Yeah, actually, I've seen plenty, plenty of good reporting. And I must say, in general, I've been really impressed by what a great job journalists have done. I think they've really, many have, yeah, done a really good job at um, making messages uh, clear and uh, approachable. And I've been impressed also by the, the speed, their speed, you know, like <laughs> compared to scientists, they're able to <laughs> turn out really good, good articles and good work quickly. And uh, I've, I've gotten most of my COVID information actually from, um, from journalists. And uh, so I can't necessarily necessarily name uh, name many but I've, yeah from all the most reputable uh, outlets uh, that I've come across like well the, the Guardian or um, the New York Times or I don't know I've 
in general been quite impressed by the work uh, that they've done. And they have actually given a lot of the caveats, you know, some of the earlier studies on hydroxychloroquine. I think journalists have done a good job also explaining all the caveats and saying these are small studies mm-hmm. and they haven't been conducted with the most rigorous methods, you know, of random allocation. So I think all of these messages I've seen in many um, articles, um, many of the earlier articles. So I think in general, they do a, they mm. do a, they've done a good job. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I saw some other I saw some other connection that you made that reminded me of of journalism. You talked about epidemiologists should do a better job engaging with health providers, with nurses and doctors. And you talk about people in general have great trust in their doctor. It was like yeah. 70%, 75%. It reminded me of journalism. People trust their local journalists. 70% they don't trust national journalists very much. It's like 50% in the US. So as an epidemiologist who does a lot of data work, how do you do that? How do you engage uh, the general nurses, doctors, people that are on the ground seeing patients? Yeah, so as an epidemiologist, I guess most of uh, our work is then uh, engaging with uh, with providers will be uh, in uh, defining the research questions. So more at uh, the earlier stage of research to ensure that we have uh, relevant research questions that really address uh, their concerns rather than whatever concerns they may have from a purely scientific perspective. Uh, uh, point of view. So that that's um, um, our way. And then uh, also to um, uh, a certain extent with the, the dissemination, uh, then the findings, uh, or the, let's say more the communication of findings. So in what way should this be, uh, this message uh, be uh, best uh, communicated to your peers or also to your patients? So I think that's one way uh, to, uh, to uh, engage with them. And I guess you can also go a step further, which is also to engage them a bit more in uh, in, in practice also, to uh, in the way that they interact with their patients. But I must say that I don't have a lot of experience with. So so now I'm gonna, I'd like to give you a chance to, to, to speculate on the future. And uh, <laughs> so, so one of the things that you started your time to talk about trust with was about do vaccines do more harm than good? And one part of the COVID story that's being told with, with uh, kind of strong sentiment and emotion is once we have a vaccine, then everything will be as before. That's that's often the message that seems to be conveyed. So will people even take use the COVID vaccine if it's available? Will they come and take it? I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence, as you noted, about the effectiveness of vaccines. And yet there's reluctance across the spectrum of the world, across this, you know, across countries, across conditions within countries of people that are reluctant to engage. And these are cases with proven effective vaccines, as opposed to now we're looking at potential effective vaccines. So so now, you know, we've got a little bit of time, you know, may, may, <laughs> may, maybe another four or five months, but at the best case of having this. Do you, you know, what kind of things do you think about in terms of if, if when this when we start to, when our vaccine starts to roll out, what are some of the ways that 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 as you think about trust and as you think about this this connection with the local care providers and the edu- importance of education about trying to get people to engage and use and 
the, these opportunities, these vaccines? I must say, when it comes to the vaccine, my major concern at the moment is not even so much how do we get, uh, you know, people to take the vaccine, but it's more uh, how do we ensure that we have the vaccine, we provide access to the vaccine for because yeah. have, not only do we have to, you know, find uh, find a candidate, but then we'll have to mass distribute it, yeah. ma- mass produce it first, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. mass distribute it. And how do we ensure yeah. that this is done in a fair way? That that is more my concern. If we think the 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 amount, the us, this is a global pandemic. It is everywhere. It affects every single one of us, and. This, this I find really very daunting as a first step. Yeah. Yeah. But, so uh, to be honest, that occupies most of my thoughts <laughs> regarding the vaccine. Uh, but indeed, it, it, it's also very important to think how, yeah. uh, and that I guess a lot of it also has to do with then the technicalities of the vaccine and uh, um, whether yes. it's, uh, which will be a one shot or whether it'd be something that you have to take every, every month, every year. Um, that will have huge implications. I mean, we see the flu vaccine. There isn't a very high uh, That's right. uptake. I think it'll be a bit similar to that one. And, but I don't know. I don't know. It can go both ways, right? Because if um, clearly it's being seen now as a panacea, which clearly it isn't, but maybe the fact that it's being seen as a panacea may help with its uptake. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. <laughs> so I, can I just change gears just a little bit? I'm, when you and I had talked previously, you had talked about some of the work that you were doing. And, and you had talked about how you were, you were working with entertainers and trying to get this mm-hmm. message out. Could you, could you just talk a little bit about that? I, thought, I found that to be a fascinating story about how you were, mm-hmm. were enlisting kind of a, a very visible figures to try to, to, to get the work done. Yeah, so that's a, it's the work we were doing on TB, on tuberculosis in um, in Uganda. Yeah, there we are. Um, so we, uh, as epidemiologists at KIT, where I work, we also do a lot of monitoring and evaluation of health interventions. So that's collecting and analyzing data relating to an inter- a public health intervention throughout the rollout of this intervention to um, understand <clears throat> whether the, uh, the intervention is going as planned and to maybe suggest certain... Um, changes in, uh, in in the design of the intervention. So as part of our monitoring and evaluation work for a TB REACH, we're also uh, monitoring and evaluating an intervention uh, in Uganda where um, one of the biggest um, music uh, stars of the country, who is called Bebe Cool, is working towards uh, together with the Stop TB partnership to increase awareness um, about TB. And this is indeed really fascinating and also very interestingly linked to the concept of trust. Because he 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 really he has a huge fan base, um, people who really you know uh, yeah li- listen to him, listen to his songs, and it's uh, uh, really awesome to see how he's using this platform to um, sensitize people to um, the importance of being tested for TB and if you have symptoms, and also doing a lot of work to destigmatize TB. It's sort of a very mm. stigmatizing disease in Uganda, and he works a lot to, yeah, normalize it. And so he's in his concerts, and he goes, "Hey, are you are you guys all feeling good? Yeah, you know, ready to, you know, sing along? Yeah, okay, are you coughing?" <laughs> <laughs> 
And then, um, yeah, I says, well, you know, there's, um, if ever you're experiencing any of these symptoms and he lists them, he says, well, you know, outside the concert hall, there's a, a van from the National TB Control Program. Uh, go there, get tested wow. and, uh, you know, let me know how it goes. And, and people really engage with him like that. And he uses that to, yeah, encourage uh, testing for TB. And um, I'm very, very curious to, uh, yeah, it's data I'm very eager to analyze. <laughs> see how that goes unfortunately the timing has been terrible because covid struck. so many of his concerts have been cancelled of course because uganda had a very strict uh, lockdown so he's still uh, he had a nice uh, song where he's so he's also now thinking of how he can combine tb and covid and messages because in many ways they're similar and the efforts of the uh the health system in uganda has tried to um yeah respond in as much as possible in a coordinated fashion for TB and uh, COVID. So he's trying to, yeah, work on that now. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Sandra, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thank you.